Chapter Twenty Four of With Clive in India. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Oldman. Chapter Twenty Four. Mounted Infantry. A few days after Plassey, Colonel Clive sent for Charlie. Marriott, he said, I must send you back with two hundred men to Madras. The governor there has been writing to me by every ship which has come up the coast, begging me to move down with the bulk of the force as soon as affairs are a little settled here. That is out of the question. There are innumerable matters to be arranged. Mir Jaffier must be sustained. The French, under law, must be driven entirely out of Bengal. The Dutch must be dealt with. Altogether, I have need of every moment of my time and of every man under my orders for at least two years. However, I shall at once raise a Bengal native army and so release the sepoys of Madras if there be any special and sore need. I must, of course, denude myself here of troops to succor Madras, but I hope it will not come to that. In the meantime, I propose that you shall take back two hundred of the Madras Europeans. Lawrence will be glad to have you, and your chances of fighting are greater there than they will be here. Bengal is overawed, and so long as I maintain the force I now have, it is unlikely in the extreme to rise, whereas battles and sieges, great and small, are the normal conditions of Madras. The next day, Charlie, with 200 European troops, marched down towards Calcutta. Clive had told him to select any officer he pleased to accompany him as second in command, and he chose Peters, who, seeing that there were likely to be far more exciting times in Madras than in Bengal at present, was very glad to accompany him. Three days after reaching Calcutta, Charlie and his party embarked on board a ship which conveyed them without adventure to Madras. The authorities were glad, indeed, of the reinforcement, for the country was disturbed from end to end. Since the departure of every available man for Calcutta, the company had been able to afford but little aid to Muhammad Ali, and the authority of the latter had dwindled to a mere shadow in the Carnatic. The Maharatas made incursions in all directions. The minor chiefs revolted and refused to pay tribute, and many of them entered into an alliance with the French. Disorder everywhere reigned in the Carnatic, and Trichinopoly was, again, the one place which Muhammad Ali held. The evening after landing, Charlie Marriott had a long chat with Colonel Lawrence who, after explaining to him exactly the condition of affairs in the country, asked him to tell him, frankly, what command he would like to receive. I have thought for some time, Charlie said, that the establishment of a small force of really efficient cavalry, trained to act as infantry, also would be invaluable. The Maharatta horsemen, by their rapid movements, set our infantry in defiance, and the native horse of our allies are useless against them. I am convinced that 200 horsemen, trained and drilled to take out cavalry at home, 
would ride through any number of them. In a country like this, where every petty Raja has his castle, cavalry alone could, however, do little. They must be able to act as infantry, and should have a couple of little four-pounders to take about with them. A force like this would do more to keep order in the Carnatic than one composed of infantry alone. Of ten times its strength, it would act as a police force, call upon petty chiefs who refuse to pay their share of the revenue, restore order in disturbed places, and permit the peasants to carry on their agricultural work, upon which the revenue of the company depends, and altogether render valuable services. Among the soldiers who came down with me is a sergeant who was at one time a trooper in an English regiment. He exchanged to come out with the 39th to India, and has again exchanged into the company's service. I would make him drill instructor, if you will give him a commission as ensign. Peters, I should like as my second in command, and if you approve of the plan, I should be very much obliged if you would get him his step as captain. He's a good officer and has not had such luck as I have. Colonel Lawrence was very much pleased at the idea and gave Charlie full authority to carry it out. The work of enlistment at once commenced. Hossein made an excellent recruiting sergeant. He went into the native bazaars and by telling of the exploits of Charlie at Ambor and Suwan Drug and holding out bright prospects of the plunder which such a force would be likely to obtain, he succeeded in recruiting a hundred and fifty of his co-religionists. In these days, fighting was a trade in India, and in addition to the restless spirits of the local community, great numbers of the hardy natives of northern India, Afghans, Pathans, and others were scattered over India, ever ready to enlist in the service of the highest bidder. Among such men as these, Hussein had no difficulty in obtaining a hundred and fifty picked horsemen. Charlie had determined that his force should consist of four troops, each of fifty strong. Of these, one would be composed of Europeans, and he was permitted to take this number from the party he had brought down. He had no difficulty in obtaining volunteers, for as soon as the nature of the force was known, the men were eager to engage in it. To this troop, the two little field pieces would be committed. A few days later, after the scheme had been sanctioned, Anstey was at work drilling the recruits as cavalry. Charlie and Peters were instructed by him, also in the drill and words of command, and were soon able to assist. Two months were spent in severe work, and at the end of that time, the little regiment were able to execute all simple cavalry maneuvers with steadiness and regularity. The natives were all men who had lived on horseback from their youth, and therefore required no teaching to ride. 
They were also, at the end of that time, able to act as infantry with as much regularity as the ordinary sepoys. When so engaged, four horses were held by one man, so that a hundred and fifty men were available for fighting on foot. The work had been unusually severe, but as the officers did not spare themselves, and Charlie had promised a present to each man of the troop when fit for service, they had worked with alacrity and had taken great interest in learning their few duties. At the end of two months, they were inspected by Colonel Lawrence and Governor Pigeot, and both expressed their highest gratification and surprise at their efficiency and anticipated great benefits would arise from the organization. So urgent indeed was the necessity that something should be done for the restoration of order that Charlie had with difficulty obtained the two months necessary to attain the degree of perfection which he deemed necessary. The day after the inspection, the troops marched out from Madras. Ensign Anstey commanded the white troop. The other three were led by native officers. Captain Peters commanded the squadron composed of the white troop and one of the others, a Lieutenant Hollows, whom Peter knew to be a hard-working and energetic officer, was, at Charlie's request, appointed to the command of the other squadron. He himself commanded the whole. So urgent, indeed, was the necessity that something should be done for the restoration of order that Charlie had, with difficulty, obtained the two months necessary to attain the degree of perfection which he deemed necessary. The day after the inspection, the troops marched out from Madras. Ensign Anstey commanded the white troop. The other three were led by native officers. Captain Peters commanded the squadron composed of the white troop and one of the others. A Lieutenant Hallows, whom Peters knew to be a hard-working and energetic officer, was at Charlie's request appointed to the command of the other squadron. He himself commanded the whole. They had been ordered, in the first place, to move to Arcot, which was held by a garrison of Muhammad Ali. The whole of the country around was greatly disturbed. French intrigued, and the sight of the diminished power of the English had caused most of the minor chiefs in that neighborhood to throw off their allegiance. A body of Maharatta horse were ravaging the country districts, and it was against these that Charlie determined, in the first place, to act. He had been permitted to have his own way in the clothing and arming of his force. Each man carried a musket, which had been shortened some six inches, and hung in slings from the saddle, the muzzle resting in a piece of leather, technically termed a bucket. The ammunition pouch was slung on the other side of the saddle and could be fastened in an instant by two straps to the belts which the troopers wore round their waists. The men were dressed in brown, thick cotton cloths, called khaki. Round their black forage caps were wound a long length of blue and white cotton cloth, forming a turban, with the ends hanging down 
to protect the back of the neck and spine from the sun. Having obtained news that the Mahratta horse, 2,000 strong, were pillaging at a distance of six miles from the town, Charlie set off the day following his arrival to meet them. The Mahratas had notice of his coming, but hearing that the force was consisted only of 200 horse, they regarded it with contempt. When Charlie first came upon them, they were in the open country, and seeing that they were prepared to attack him, he drew up his little force in two lines. The second line he ordered to dismount to act as infantry. The two guns were loaded with grape, and the men of the first line were drawn up at sufficient interviews to allow an infantryman to pass between each horse. With shouts of anticipated triumph, the Mahratta's horse swept down. The front line of English horsemen had screened the movements of those behind, and when the enemy were within fifty yards, Charlie gave the word. The troopers already sat, musket in hand, and between each horse, an infantry soldier now stepped forward, while towards each end the line opened and the two field pieces were advanced. The Mahratta's horsemen were astonished at this sudden maneuver but pressed by the mass from behind, they still continued their charge. When but fifteen yards from the English line, a stream of fire ran out along this from end to end. Every musket was emptied into the advancing force, while the guns on either flank swept them with grape. The effect was tremendous. Scarcely a man of the front line survived the fire, and the whole mass halted and recoiled in confusion. Before they could recover themselves, another volley of shot and grape was fired into them. Then Charlie's infantry ran back, and the cavalry, closing up, dashed upon the foe, followed half a minute afterwards by the lately dismounted man of the other two troops. Ten white soldiers alone remaining to work and guard by the guns. The effect of the charge of these two hundred disciplined horse upon the already disorganized mob of Mahratta horsemen was irresistible, and in a few minutes the Mahrattas were scattered in full flight over the plain, pursued by the British cavalry, now broken up into eight half-troops. The rout was complete, and in a very short time the last Mahratta had fled, leaving behind them three hundred dead upon the plain. Greatly gratified with their success and feeling confident now in their own powers, the British force returned to Arcut. Charlie now determined to attack the fort of Valor, which was regarded as impregnable. The town lay at the foot of some very steep and rugged hills, which were surmounted by three detached forts. The Rajah, encouraged by the French, had renounced his allegiance to Muhammad Ali, and had declared himself independent. As, however, it was certain that he was prepared to give assistance to the French when they took the field against the English, Charlie determined to attack the place. The French had received large reinforcements and had already captured many forts and strong places around Pondicherry. They were, however, awaiting the arrival of still larger forces, known to be on the way before they made a decisive and, as they hoped, final attack upon the English. 
The Rajah's army consisted of some 1,500 infantry and as many cavalry. These advanced to meet the English force. Charlie feigned a retreat as they came on and retired to a village some 30 miles distance. The cavalry pursued at full speed, leaving the infantry behind. Upon reaching the village, Charlie at once dismounted all his men, lined with enclosures, and received the enemy's cavalry as they galloped up, with so heavy a fire that they speedily drew rein. After trying for some time to force the position, they began to fall back, and the English force again mounted, dashing upon them, and completed their defeat. The broken horsemen, as they rode across the plain, met their infantry advancing, and those, disheartened at the defeat of the cavalry, fell back in great haste, and, abandoning the town, which was without fortification, retired at once to the forts commanding it. Charlie took possession of the town and spent the next two days in reconnoitering the forts. The largest and nearest of these faced the right of town. It was called Suzaro. The second, on an even steeper hill, was called Guzaro. The third, which lay some distance behind this and was much smaller, was called Mortz, Azur. Charlie determined to attempt, in the first place, to carry Guzaro, as in this, which was considered the most inaccessible. The Raja himself had taken up his position having with him all his treasure. Charlie saw that it would be next to impossible with so small a force to carry it by a direct attack, by the road which led to it, as this was completely covered by its guns. It appeared to him, however, that the rocks upon which it stood were by no means inaccessible. He left twenty men to guard his guns, placed a guard of ten upon the road leading up to the fort, to prevent the inhabitants from sending up news of his intentions to the garrison, who had, with that of Suzaro, kept up a fire from their guns upon the town since his arrival there. The moon was not to rise until eleven o'clock, and at nine Charlie marched with a hundred and seventy men from the town. Making a considerable detour, he found himself at half-past ten at the foot of the rocks, rising almost sheer from the upper part of the hill. He was well provided with ropes and ladders. The most perfect silence he had been enjoined upon the men, and in the darkness the march had been unseen by the enemy. While waiting for the moon to rise, the troopers all wound piece of cloth with which they were provided round their boots to prevent these from making a noise by slipping or stumbling on the rocks. When the moon rose, the ascent of the rocks began at the point which Charlie had, after a close inspection through a telescope, judged to be the most accessible. The toil was very severe. One by one the men climbed ledge to ledge, some of the most active hillmen from northern India leading the way and aiding their comrades to follow them by lowering ropes and placing ladders at the most inaccessible spots. All this time they were completely hidden from the observation of the garrison above. At last the leaders of the party stood at the foot of the walls, which rose a few feet from the edge of the cliff. The operation had been performed almost noiselessly. The ammunition pouches had been left behind, each man carrying ten rounds in his belt. 
Every piece of metal had been carefully removed from the uniform, the very buttons having been cut off lest they should strike against the rocks, and the muskets had been swathed up in thick covering. The men, as they gained the upper ridge, spread along at the foot of the walls until the whole body had gathered there. They could hear the voices of the sentries, thirty feet above them, but these, having no idea of the vicinity of an enemy, did not look over the edge of the wall. Indeed, the parapets of the Indian fortifications were always too high, that it was only from projecting towers at the foot of the wall could be seen. When the English force was assembled, the ladders, which, like everything else, had been muffled, were placed against the walls, and, headed by their officers, the troops ascended. The surprise was complete. Not until the leaders of the storming party stood upon the parapet was their presence perceived. The guards discharged their firelocks and fled hastily. As soon as twenty were collected on the wall, Charlie took the command of these and hurried forward towards the gate. Hallows was to lead the next party along the opposite direction. Peters was to form the rest up as they gained the wall and to follow Charlie with fifty more, while Anstey was to hold the remainder in reserve to be used as circumstances might demand. The resistance, however, was slight. Taken absolutely by surprise, the enemy rushed out from their sleeping places. They were immediately fired upon from the walls. The greater part ran back into shelter while some of the more determined, gathering together, made for the gate. But of this Charlie had already taken possession and received them with so vigorous a fire that they speedily fell back. When the whole circuit of the wall was in its possession, Charlie took a hundred of his men and descended into the fort. Each building, as he reached it, was searched, and the garrison it contained made to come out and lay down their arms, and were then allowed to depart through the gate. Upon reaching the Rajah's quarters, he at once came out and surrendered himself. Two guns were discharged to inform the little body in the town of the complete success of the movement and the guard on the road then fell back and joined the party with the guns. Thus, without losing a man, the fort at Guzzaro, regarded by the natives as being impregnable, was carried. Fifteen lakhs of rupees were found in the treasury. Of these, in accordance with the rules of service, half was set aside for the company. The remainder became the property of the force. Of this, half fell to the officers, in proportion to their rank, and the rest was divided among the men. The share of each trooper amounted to nearly two hundred pounds. Knowing how demoralizing the possession of such a sum would be, Charlie assembled his force next morning. He pointed out to them that, as the greater part of the plunder was in silver, it would be impossible for them to carry it on their persons. He advised them then to allow the whole sum to remain in the treasury to be forwarded under an escort to Madras, each soldier to receive an order for the amount of his share upon the treasury there. This was agreed to unanimously, and Charlie then turned his attention to the other forts. The guns of Guzaro were turned against these, and a bombardment commenced. 
Suzero, which extended partly down the slope, was much exposed to the fire from Guzero, and although no damage could be done to the walls at so great a distance, the garrison, suffering from the fire, and intimidated by the fall of Guzero, lost heart. Large numbers descended, and the governor, in the course of two days, thought it prudent to obey the orders which the Rajah had, upon being made captive, sent him to surrender. The next day the governor of Mortz Azur followed his example, and Valor, and its three strong forts, were thus in the possession of the English. At Valor, Charlie nearly lost one of his faithful followers. Early in the morning, Hussein came into Charlie's room. Sahib, he said, something is the matter with Tim. What is the matter? Charlie said, sitting up in his bed. I do not know, Sahib. When I went to him, he did not move. He was wide awake, and his eyes were staring. When I went beside him, he shook his head a little and said, Shh, he seems quite rigid, and it is as pale as death. Charlie leaped out and hurried to Tim. The latter was lying on the ground in the next room. He had carried off three or four cushions from the Rajah's divan, and had thrown these down and spread a rug over him. He lay on his back exactly as Hussein had described. As Charlie hurried up, Tim again gave vent to the warning. Shh! What is the matter, Tim? What is the matter, my poor fellow? Tim made a slight motion with his head for his master to bend towards him. Charlie leaned over, and he whispered, There is a serpent in bed with me. Are you quite sure, Tim? He woke me with his cold touch, Tim whispered. I felt him crawling against my foot, and now he is lying against my leg. Charlie drew back for a minute and consulted with Hussein. Lie quite still, Tim, he said, and don't be afraid. We will try to kill him without touching you. But even if he should bite you, with help ready at hand, there will be no danger. Charlie now procured two knives, the one a sharp surgical knife from a case which he had brought. The other he placed in the charcoal fire, which one of the men speedily fanned, until the blade had attained a white heat. Charlie had described that if the snake bit Tim, he would instantly make a deep cut through the line of the puncture of the fangs, cutting down as low as these could penetrate, and immediately cauterizing it by placing the hot knife in the gash so made. Six men called in with orders to seize Tim on the instant and hold his leg firm to enable the operation to be performed. Two others were to occupy themselves with the snake. These were armed with sticks. Uzan now approached from the bed, from which hitherto they had all kept well aloof. The snake, Tim said, lay against his leg between the knee and the ankle, and the spot was marked by a slight elevation of the rug. Huzan drew his tulwar, examined the edge to see that nothing had blunted its razor-like keenness, and then took his stand at the foot of the bed. Twice he raised his weapon, and then let it fall with a drawing motion. The keen blade cut through the rug as if it had been pasteboard, and at the same instant, Tim sprang from the other side of the bed and fainted in the arms of his men. Hussein threw off the rug, and there, severed in pieces, lay the writhing body of a huge cobra. Tim 
soon recovered under the administration of water sprinkled in his face and brandy poured down his throat but he was some time ere he thoroughly recovered from the effects of the trying ordeal through which he had passed many of the buildings in the fort were in very bad condition and charlie had several of the most dilapidated destroyed finding in their walls several colonies of cobras which were all killed by the troops end of chapter twenty four